Harlan, how are we doing this morning? Good. Hey, it's been, uh, it's been an awesome week around here at Heartland from some of the different ministries and things that have been happening over the week, uh, going back to Wednesday night with this building filled with students and our midweek folks, and then Thursday night, you may not know this if you, unless you follow our social media, but the Heartland softball team clinched the championship in the Blue Valley Rec League, and that's a big deal, y'all. Yeah, yeah. I got called in as a sub, got on base twice. I feel like that's uh, really, yes, yes, big deal. Uh, and then Friday night, Friday night, a big night, uh, some of our women's uh, uh, groups, we have crowded tables, things that were happening within our women's ministry on Friday nights. And then as Dan said yesterday, uh, a whole bunch of Heartland men gathered down south of Lewisburg, uh, just shooting potato guns, having fun, eating barbecue, and then staying up way too late last night around the campfire. And I was one of those, uh, along with Craig is still out there, uh, he camped out there under the stars with some guys, and Dan was out there as well, and just, I, I stayed too late because I was loving the conversation that was happening when you get guys together, when you get anyone together, and you just dedicate some space, some time to talk to one another about one another and to talk about God. And that's who we are as a church, that we make space to build relationships. Because as we build those relationships, Jesus becomes more and more first in our life. That's the goal. That's why we're here. That's what we're talking about in the series that we've been in called It Brings Me Joy. And every week of this series, we're talking about the things that we do for the good of others but also for our joy. And these things aren't necessarily easy things. They aren't necessarily comfortable things. These are things like serving one another. We do it for their good, but in the process we experience joy. Things, things like praying for one another, things like giving our generosity, what Dan just talked about. We do this for the good of one another, but we also do it for our joy. Things like talking to other people about who Jesus is. This is not a comfortable thing, but we do it for one another's good, but also for our joy. And if you've been paying attention to this series, if you're connecting the dots, we don't just want to talk about these things as a church. That when we leave this series, and it's in the rearview mirror of our church, that, it, that, that the things we're talking about are continuing to be practiced by us as a church. That this is who we want to be and how we want to live as a church, which makes which makes so much of what we're talking about today so important because everything that we've talked about in this series, none of it can happen without what we're talking about today. That, that if you think about serving, and what, if you think about serving, if you think about giving generously, you think about talking to other people about Jesus or, or prayers, none of these things can happen, at least can happen well, without what we're talking about today. And what we're talking about today is right here. It's humility. Everyone, everyone say that word, humility. Man, you did that great. You guys got this down. We don't even need a sermon on this, right? No. Uh, we're humility. Without humility, nothing that we've talked about this series during the series can happen. Without humility, when we serve one another and when we give to one another, this is just charity in its worst form without humility. Without humility, when we talk to others about Jesus, this is what has given churches and Christians a terrible name for so long because we do these things without humility. So we need humility. We need humility if we're gonna practice all the things that we've been talking about in this series for the good of others, for our joy, for God's joy, and even and especially for their joy, the people that we are giving ourselves on behalf to. So I'd love to know what comes to your mind when you think of humility. 
And we probably have all sorts of different understandings and definitions of it. We probably kind of see it in different ways. And as I think about maybe the opposite of humility, what kind of comes to my mind is just choose, you know, your favorite awards show that airs on primetime at some time during the year. Just take the Oscars, right? And I'm not saying that because of what happened at the Oscars this year. I'm not, I'm not going there. I'm just saying when you take people and all sorts of accolades and recognition and fame and egos and you put them all in the same room, this is going to be a hard place to spot humility, right? And so, in fact, uh, The Atlantic ran an article about this, and they recounted some of the most famous speeches that awards recipients from the Oscars have have had over the years. And uh, they had viewers rank them from what they deemed to be the most humble speeches by these celebrities and what were the least humble speeches by these celebrities. And so on on one end, the least humble of these speeches actually came from this guy, John Wayne, the Duke, in 1970 when he won an award for, anyone know what it is? True Grit. True Grit, that's right. True Grit, when he awarded, there was an, an earlier one before the newer one for some of you. When he won an award for True Grit, and when he received this award, and imagine this, John Wayne, a guy of this stature, the guy who called the Duke, what he said in his speech was, tonight I don't feel very clever or witty, I feel grateful and humble. And viewers were drawn toward his contrition and his meekness. Now. The least humble speech that was given at the Oscars, according to, uh, this was written about five or six years ago, so maybe that's changed, but the least least humble award uh, speech was given by this guy, James Cameron. This is 1998, when he received the best picture for Titanic. And when he received this award, he, he stood up, he high-fived all the people around him, he hooped and he hollered, he threw his arms up in the air, and he shouted, what did he shout? I'm the king of the world! Least humble, most humble, according to these viewers. Now, here's the thing. We can spot a lack of humility all over the place, and we might even be able to spot humility, but here's what I, I, think, I think I know about all of us is we don't want to be that guy. We want to be more of this guy, right? But, but how, right? We want to be humble, but I think what we want more than to be humble is probably just to be known as being a humble person. It's like John Ortberg, author, says. He says, we'd like to be humble, but what if no one notices? Right? Isn't that kind of the tension or the struggle that I think we all have with humility? We'd like to be humble, but what if no one notices? So what is it? Let's get on the same page. When we think of humility and when dictionaries try to define what humility is, typically what we think of are things like being free from arrogance, which we can say, sure, that's, that's a good part of it. And we, we think about it as a, a sense of having a low importance. And yeah, maybe there's some truth to that too. But typically in our minds, what we do with this understanding is we equate that, having low importance and being free from arrogance, as, as kind of having a low sense of self-esteem. And that is far from what the Bible defines humility as. Uh, In fact, this is something that pastor author Tim Keller uh, says about humility in his book. I highly recommend it. It's called The Art of the Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It's a short book. It's very, very readable where he talks about really humility isn't so much having a low opinion of yourself. It's, and get this, it's having a low opinion of your opinion of yourself. Do you catch that? It's not having a low opinion of yourself, it's just not thinking much of what you think of yourself. 
This is, he, he builds on the work of C.S. Lewis, who in his like, you know, kind of staple work, Mere Christianity, he talks about pride and he contrasts it with humility. And C.S. Lewis says, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. So if, if this is true, and I believe this is true, then humility isn't so much what you think of yourself, it's how much you think about yourself. So question, as we jump in, how much do you think about yourself? If you were able to audit all of the thoughts that come through your mind every single day, what would it tell you about how much you think about yourself? So Jesus was the most humble person who ever lived. Of course he was, he was Jesus, which is why we're not gonna start with him. We're gonna start with someone a little more relatable who wasn't God, who wasn't perfect. Because we're gonna start with someone who exhibited an, an enormous amount of humility, a mind-blowing amount of humility. And it's the kind of humility that I think we all wish that we would be able to exhibit if we were in a moment like this person was. And because this person wasn't Jesus, it tells us we have a chance. So this person that we're gonna be looking at is a guy, he lived at the same time of Jesus. His name was John. There's a couple different Johns in the Bible. This is John the Baptist, all right? Now we see John the Baptist's story. This is gonna get confusing for a second, but in a number of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and another John, who uh, wrote about the life of Jesus, and John the disciple wrote the gospel of John, which happens to include a little bit of John the Baptist's story. You with me? Two different Johns, one name, one's writing about another one. And so when John the disciple is writing about a little bit of the life and ministry of John the Baptist, we find John out in the countryside. So he's kind of out in the wilderness, a long way out from any kind of major town, along the Jordan River. And John has had this message He's a rabbi and he's got a message. And his message is to all of the people of Israel. He says, you need to repent. Dan talked about this word last week. To repent is to have a turning of ourselves, of our heart and of our mind, to turn and agree with God, to agree with him about who he is and about who we are. And John was saying that who God is is a God of justice, but also a God of love and mercy. And who we are are people in need because because of God's justice, we are in need of his love and mercy because of the sins in our lives and the messes that we tend to have made of our lives and, and of this world. This is John's message is to repent. But then John did something else with this message is as he was by the Jordan River, he would baptize people. He would walk them into the river there and he would immerse them completely down into the water. And this was the first time that we see any recording of baptism in scripture. There's something similar to it in the Old Testament where the Jewish people would, would have a ceremony ceremonial ritual cleansing to kind of symbolize the, the cleansing of their sins. But John's kind of putting a new twist on this where he's actually baptizing other people. This is the first time someone else is involved in this. Also, he's immersing them down completely underwater. The baptize comes from the Greek word baptizo, which means to immerse. So it's symbolic of someone saying, I am being made completely new. And I'm doing this not simply to symbolize the washing of sins, but also the newness of what God is doing in me, what he's making of me, and to symbolize my commitment and dedication to a new way of life and to the God of this universe and to his kingdom. 
We're going to get to celebrate this after my message this morning. It's going to be a powerful moment for all of us. This is what John's doing. So John is preaching this message of repentance. He's baptizing people, and he's making quite a name for himself. In fact, there are, he, he's, a, he's a, a rabbi. He's got a message. He's got his own disciples. Then people start catching wind of this. So the other gospels tell us that everyone from Jerusalem is traveling out to see him. This is about a day's journey on foot. Like They would have to pack a couple picnics to get there and back, and they're walking out in the desert to see him in the wilderness. Not only that, but the, the famous people of the day, like the who's who of Israel knows about John. And so they are kind of asking, they come up to him and they're like, hey, who are you? You seem like you're kind of a big deal. So like, are you from God? Are you one of the prophets? Are you the Messiah that we've been waiting for? And to all of them, John says, says no, no, no. There, there is someone even greater and even bigger than me who is coming behind me. Okay, so that's John. And when we find John, it's his John chapter And uh, right before this, Jesus has been coming out to the Jordan River. And John looks at him, and he points all of the crowds and all of his disciples. He says, there he is. That's the one whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. Apparently some like first century way of saying, he's the big deal. I'm not. A little bit right after this, John's disciples see Jesus kind of down river, doing his own baptizing. Now we have two people baptizing in the Jordan. And John's disciples are not very happy about this. They're quite bothered by it, that someone else is doing what John has done and has made quite a name for himself. So we see this in John 3. It says that they, John's disciples, came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one that you testified about, look, he is baptizing. And everyone is going to him. Do you feel the, like, angst in their words? Do you see how bothered they are? You can imagine them, if there was more to this conversation that was written out, you can imagine that these guys are saying to John, hey, hey, that guy, that guy that you pointed to, that guy that you've been, you know, apparently preparing for, he's out here, he's doing what you've been doing, but you were here first. This guy's creeping on your turf, John. You're the baptizer, not him. And everyone is going to him, and no one is coming to us anymore. And here's, what, here's kind of what, what John says to them. He's, uh, well, before that, it's like, you think about this. This is, this is a pivotal moment in John's ministry. But we see this moment kind of play out in our own lives as well. This is any time that someone starts becoming a bigger deal than we think we are. Am I the only one who has those moments? Just me? Okay. All right, I'll put myself out there. Uh, no, I think we all do. These are those moments where someone else starts becoming a bigger deal than we are. We see this moment in our lives whenever, whenever, like in our workplace, you know, someone who works at your company or is on your team, uh, you find out that they're gunning for the same position that you think you're next in line for. And so in that moment, you see this as an opportunity, a need to prove yourself or to sell yourself or to inflate yourself so that you can secure what you don't want them to have because you don't want them to be a bigger deal than you are. This, this is, maybe it's just you know, someone else around you in, in your workplace or in, you know, another person in your family or whatever. Their, their opinion is getting louder than yours is. And it's beginning to be heard. 
And so what you do in that moment is you start to turn up the volume of your opinion to make sure that your opinion is heard as much as, if not then more than theirs is. This is, this is when someone who's, whose career or their success or their accolades begin catching traction more than yours done in, in your company. And so it's like, yeah, all of a sudden they start getting recognition from the higher ups. They start getting accolades and awards and achievements. And so you feel this angsty urge to, to try to make more of yourself, to sell yourself, to prove yourself. This happens to us as pastors all the time. It's when there's a new church in town and it's like, oh man, it feels like everyone's going to this new church. You know, did you hear about their pastor? Man, did you hear, did you hear how this pastor preaches? You know, or, or uh, oh, they're getting so many amens, they must have it going on, or bigger offerings, or bigger crowds. And for one thing, whenever we start talking about churches by the size of our offerings, or by the size of our crowds, or even using the word crowd to describe church, we're like way off. We're just wrong, right? So, but this happens to us too. Just, you know, there's, here's, here's my flesh. It's this kind of angst of, okay, what am I doing wrong? How do, we, how do we stay out in front? What are all of these things? We have these moments where something or someone else, all of us, begins to be a bigger deal than us. And what we do in those moments matter. What John would do in this moment would matter. The disciples are coming up to him saying, you got to do something. You got to put an end to this because you're a big deal. Those could be winsome words. So, Here's what John does. He says, you yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. John is saying, look, I, all along, I've been saying I'm not the real deal here. I'm, not, I'm just the front man, I'm, or the, the forerunner. I'm just the hype guy. I'm just getting things ready for someone bigger worth paying attention to who's coming after me. He says, if this was a wedding, because in the first century in the Bible, they really liked the wedding imagery. He said, if this was a wedding, uh, I'm not the groom. I'm just maybe one of the groomsmen at best. He says it like this. He says, the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him, the groom, and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. John, John is giving us a, a, a picture of what humility looks like here, because the next six words that John says, we have to pay attention to this, the next six words were the most defining words of John's life. If there were tombstones back in the day, these would be his epitaph. So hold on to these words. John says, look, he must become greater and I must become less. He says, some translations will say he must increase and I must decrease. And this is a picture of what humility is. It's making more of others especially Jesus, and making less of yourself. John, in this moment, has the self-awareness and the understanding of who he is that these guys come up to him, and he, said, and, and he says to them, he says, look, 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 let me calm you fellas down here for a second. What I have always been is just someone getting ready for Jesus who's coming after me. And so, uh, in fact, you know what? I don't think your concern is really about me anyway. I think this is about you guys. Because if I'm not a big deal, then you're not a big deal either, Right? And so I think you want me to be a big deal just so you can keep thinking of yourselves as a big deal. But I'm here to tell you I'm not that big a deal. He's the big deal. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to get out of the way so that I can point the way to the one that we should really be paying attention to. And this is our starting point for humility. If you're wondering what's our first step, it's letting God be God and us not trying to take his place. That's what John's doing here. He's letting Jesus be God and not himself. 
One of my favorite uh, movies is a movie by the name of, it is football season. So uh, Rudy, anyone else? Rudy? There you go. Uh, Mid-90s uh, football flick. Sean Astin plays a, a nobody from the state of Indiana, a small town, nowhere Indiana, and he is a dreamer who has this immense dream to play football for the University of Notre Dame. He has no business pursuing this dream, but he continues to pursue it, and uh, he works hard. He gets admission into a, a community college nearby the campus so he can get good enough grades to get in there, but he's failed every application process he can until he has one more last chance, and he's waiting for the admission letter to see if he got in or not. And so he takes his appeal to a higher court. He goes to uh, one of the Catholic churches nearby the campus, and he's sitting in there praying with everything that he's got. And the priest, who has kind of been mentoring him, befriending him along the way, comes and sits next to him. And uh, Sean Astin, otherwise known as Rudy in this movie, looks at him and says, Father, is there anything that you can do? Have I tried, have I tried everything that there is? What more can you or I do for this to happen? And the priest says back to him, and he says, Son, in all of my years of the priesthood, there's only two facts that I've come to stake my life on. There is a God, and I'm not him. And I think in that moment, that priest gives us a picture of where humility begins, where, our, where our, our beliefs about God and who we are need to start, that there is a God, and we're not him. John the Baptist takes this one step further. He says, there is a God, and I'm not him, but there he is. Because humility points the way to Jesus. So, humility points the way to Jesus. That's why this matters so much here, Harlan. You see, right after the scene at the Jordan River, uh, there's a guy by the name of Paul. And there are a bunch of groups of people, churches, who are now trying to live in the way of Jesus and point the way to Jesus for all of the people in the world at that point. And so Paul is writing to a church in the city of Philippi this letter about how to do this. But it might as well have been a letter that was written to a church in Kansas City in the year 2022. It's because this is something that we all have to get down because what Paul is saying to this church is that if you don't get this humility thing down, then you will never be able to point the way to Jesus. If you don't get this humility thing down and figure it out, then this world will never see Jesus in you. In fact, if you don't get this humility thing down, then you will never see Jesus in one another. So that's how important this is. That, that your relationships with one another here in the church, outside of the church, will continually be, be plagued by frustration, and arguments, and competition, and even division. You will never be able to navigate the conflict that inevitably comes your way because instead of thinking of one another, you're only gonna be thinking about yourselves. That's, that's why this matters. And so Paul writes about this. He says to them, he, first of all, he calls them to a unity. He says, have one of the same mindset since because of all Jesus has done for all of you. He says, have a unity. And here's how you get there. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking out to your own interest, but each of you to the interests of others. And he starts getting really specific. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. That humility begins in our minds. It's how we think about ourselves and God and one another. That Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. This is such an important line right here. That Jesus, that, that Paul is using Jesus as our reference point. Now is where we bring Jesus into the picture. That, that 
that Jesus, who, who was in fact God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Now think about this. Jesus, who was God, who never stopped being God. It's not like he put the pause button when he came to earth and then pressed play again around the resurrection. Like he was God the whole time. He did not use the powers and the rights that he had as God to his own advantage. That he used them to yours and to mine. Why? So that we would know what God is like. That God is a God who is always giving himself away. Even the unique powers and advantages that he had, he was giving those away. That, we know this because Jesus was willing to go to the cross when he could have easily changed course as, as God. But he was willing to give those things away on your behalf and mine. There's another translation of this verse that I love because I think it gives us a picture uh, of, what, of how Jesus did this and what humility is. It says that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Think about that word grasp. Everyone take a fist. Grasp something. This is a picture, I know some of you aren't gonna do it. That's fine. Maybe you should work on your humility. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. This is what it means to grasp, to hold tightly to, to hold almost greedily. Is that a word? Greedishly? to hold with greed, to be greedy in the way that we, that we hold things. Now think about this. There's an irony here. You can let go of your fist. Uh, there's an irony here because Jesus is the only one who could have grasped equality with God. He was God, so he could grasp equality with God. But there was, there was never a moment when Jesus was on this earth when he was not the most important or powerful person in the room, right? If he was indeed God, then there was never a moment when he wasn't the most powerful person in the room. And yet, he didn't use that power for himself. He let go of that tight grasp of his powers as God so that he could use those powers for you and for me. Think about what that tells us about humility, about how we practice humility. We give up the grasp. We go from here to here. Whatever powers or advantages or, or privileges or strength, whatever we might have, we don't use them to our advantage. We use them to others by giving up the grasp. Now, if there's another meaning for grasp, it's, it's, it's not this, it's, it's this, that we're grasping for something, right? That there's something that's outside of our reach that we can't quite get to, and so we're just, we're grasping. We're grasping for it. And I think this is a good understanding of what it means to give up the grasp too, because when we're doing this, we're reaching for something that is beyond our grasp that wasn't ours to begin with, but it doesn't keep us from grasping for it. And I think this is something that plays itself out in our life all the times when we're grasping for something in our relationships. Here's what it might look like. It's in that meeting. When you said that thing, and it didn't need to be said, it didn't necessarily hurt anyone's feelings, but what you were doing was turning the attention back to yourself. <laughs> Maybe you just wanted people to know how smart you are, or how right you were, or the accomplishments that you've had. We're grasping for something in that moment, aren't we? Or we do this in conversations, whenever we one-up someone, and we try not to, but it's just so easy to talk about ourselves. When, when someone says, oh, oh, yeah, you know, I, I did this thing, and you're like, oh yeah, I did that too, only better. You know, when that doesn't sound like that, what it sounds like is, is maybe, you know, hey, I was traveling and I had this really miserable flight and you were like, oh man, I had an even more miserable flight. Like you just one-upped them. You know, or they're like, oh yeah, I ran a 5K and it was so hard. You're like, oh, I know, I did a 10K, you know? <laughs> 
And we just, we have this constant tendency to want to one-up one another. We're grasping. And to grasp is actually, you think about it, it's to steal. It's to steal something that doesn't, you're trying to grasp something that doesn't belong to you. And that's the difference between pride and humility. That pride steals other people's importance. Humility assures them of it. And so in my conversations, am I stealing people's importance? Am I grasping for theirs? Or am I assuring them of it? A few years ago, I was uh, at a funeral of the father of a friend. I didn't know the father personally. So I was getting to know the father through the words that were being said about him by the people involved in, in the funeral. And um, one of the guys who talked about this, this individual who had passed away said, said that this guy was a there you are person. You know what there you are person is? It's someone who walks into a room and they just emit this there you are attitude. All of their attention goes to you. They come to you, their attention goes to you, they talk to you about you, and in so doing that, your feeling of worth and significance and importance just goes up to here. We love being friends with there you are people. The alternative is a here I am person. You walk into the room, it's like, here I am. Now we don't do that. But somehow we find a way to get the attention in the room to become about ourselves. And we love talking to other people about ourselves. We know those people. We might even be those people. But I know in that moment, as I heard this, this individual being talked about, it made me wonder, golly, in my funeral, which is what the kind of thoughts that we have when we're at funerals, how will I be remembered? Is Brad Herndon going to be remembered as a there you are father or a here I am father? Is a there you are teammate or a here I am teammate? And those are hard words to live by. I was talking about this with uh, Tom Bronner, uh, one of our pastors here, and he had a good way of putting this in, into words, what the, that Tom always does. He says, when humility seeks notoriety, it's always for someone else. When humility is successful, the reward is for all. The fruit of our humility grows in other people's trees. Our humility rewards other people. The fruit of our humility is in other people's trees, that our humility has a way of elevating other people because we're not grasping for things that aren't ours to begin with. We're not holding tightly to things that can be used for other people's benefit. So here's, here's the question. What would it look like for you this week to give up the grasp? It starts by asking, what is it that I'm grasping for? What am I holding tightly to or reaching for in my relationships with other people? So I'll go first started making a list. Um, a lot of times it's this. I'm grasping for importance or attention, recognition. Hey, that's me. I did that. Um, but it can move into other things. Power, control, influence. If you carry the role of a leader, these are things that we can be grasping for, that we try to lead from these places rather than from places of humility. That it, instead of standing on a platform, we, use our, we should be using our platforms to elevate other people. So we grasp at these things instead. Or maybe autonomy, rightness. I was right. Just want you to know. I was right. I am right. Or security. Holding tightly onto those things. Now, maybe there's some of these things that you can, re you can relate to, that you're grasping in your life. Maybe there's any uh, other things. But I think what all of these things have in common is this word right here, more. 
It doesn't matter how much of this I have in my life. I always want more. And the way that I do that, and maybe you're the same way, is that I use the relationships that I'm in. I can use the people that are in my life to grasp more of these things, to think about myself in these ways. And so what happens is those people, your coworkers in the break room, the people that you sit on the stands with watching your, your kids' ball games, whatever it may be, all of those conversations become opportunities, even the small groups that you may be in with other folks from Heartland. Without knowing it, those conversations and those people can be the means by which you're grasping for those things. You know how Jesus gave up the grasp? Paul tells us, it says that he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance like a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself. There's a word for what Jesus did here. It's the word submit. Now, this is not a word that we like. Uh, but let's make sure we know what we're talking about. That to submit is to place your needs and wants, to place one another's needs and wants and interests above my own, to place myself beneath one another's needs and interests. Now, we probably still don't like this word, right? But here's what I know. Relationships with anyone don't happen without each person doing this. Even Jesus was willing to submit to you and me by giving away his rights and by, by letting go of his rights and powers. So we need to submit to our spouses. And some of you may be saying, hey, doesn't it just say wives should submit to their husbands? <laughs> uh, you've read the verse before that one? It says submit to one another. And then when it talks to husbands, it says husbands, love your wives like who? Jesus, who loved the church. How did Jesus love the church? By submitting himself on its behalf through death. I'm just quoting scripture. <laughs> In your coworker relationships, parents, submit yourself to your kids even at times to place their interests and needs and wants above your own and you're thinking, that's all I do. Jeez. I know, it's hard, it's hard stuff. As leaders that we would submit to one another and those that we lead with, this is why I love Heartland because we have designed our very leadership team around this whole concept of submission, of humility. If you've been around, you know we don't have one lead or senior pastor because we believe that we are better and stronger and healthier and more effective when we have not one person but one team of people who are working hard at this humility thing and we don't have it down. But this doesn't happen without Craig and Dan and I submitting to one another daily. And it happens when we say things like, uh, what would you do in this situation? What do you think about it? Hmm, I haven't thought about it that way. You know, I disagree, but tell me more about why you think this. That we're willing to submit to one another in the best interest of our future as a church, to be able to be and model, hopefully, the kind of humility that we want as a church to be able to model to our world. Because we don't want to be known for any one person, Hartland. We don't really want to be known for anything. That would be the opposite of humility, unless that one thing that we'll, we want to be known for is Jesus. That's why we're, that's why we're here. It's to make him first. So, Humility is giving up the grasp. That's hard. It took Jesus to the cross. 
We may not go to a physical cross, but we should be going to a, a figurative one every single day of our lives and our relationships with one another. It's hard, but here's what I know. There's no joy in the grasp. There's no joy in trying to prove yourself or trying to sell yourself every single day of trying to convince yourself and the people around you and God that you really are all that you think you are, that I think that I am. There's no joy in that. There's exhaustion, there's anxiety, there's regret, but there's no joy. Joy is in giving up the grass because that's when you're free. That's when you're free because you have given up the grasp. You're free to take hold of what you really can grasp, of what is within your reach, which is who you are in Jesus because of what he's done for you. And you're also able to take hold of who Jesus is. And who Jesus is, is the one who for the joy set before him, you and me, endured the cross, scorning its shame. Typically, at the end of our messages, some of my favorite ones kind of close with a really powerful personal story that just kind of show this, what we've been talking about in real life. Um, I don't have one of those today because we have this. We don't have one story. We're going to see several. There are people who have come today ready to be baptized, to say, he must increase and I must decrease. People who are saying, I'm giving up the grasp. I'm giving up trying to be God in my own life. I'm giving up trying to be God of my own world. I'm giving up trying to be God in my relationships with other people. And I can do this because of what Jesus has done for me. That in him, I've been made new. I've been forgiven. I've been restored. I've been given this beautiful purpose to live, which is, what's my purpose? What's any of our purposes as followers of Jesus? To get out of the way so we can point the way to him. So Jesus, you came to earth to do what only you could do. And because of that, we stand here filled with hope. Because of that, we can stand here knowing that we are loved by the God of this universe and that you have been preparing an eternity for us. And that eternity isn't something that we need to wait for. We get to experience it right now. So we thank you for those people who made that decision today. Lord, we pray for the work that you're doing and in our hearts, every single one of us, that we would continue to listen to your voice and to take those steps. Lord, let our desire as people and as a church be to get out of the way so that we can point the way to you. And that's what we want to commit to, what we say we need your grace and help to do. Jesus, in your name we pray. And everyone said, amen. 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 What a day.